Um, so today I'm going to speak on a little bit of a surprising subject when you, when you think about the text that uh, got us here. But I'm going to speak on God's merciful discipline. Um, and you might ask a good question, which is, how did you get that out of this text? And, and I'm going to, I'm, I didn't really, but I'm going to show you how we got there in a, in a second. Um, I think another way, maybe a no, more natural way that we could go, is to pay attention to how Luke wants to show us Uh, that God always fulfills His Word. And there's at least four ways in this little um, section, and He's going to do it again with Mary and and Jesus, where He shows Zachariah and Elizabeth would miraculously have a baby boy that was promised in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, and it happened. uh, God's Word was that His name would be John, even against the pressure of social norms. And His name was John. Um, Prophesied that God spoke that many would rejoice at his birth. And we find here many rejoicing with Zachariah and Elizabeth at the birth of this boy, John. And God uh, promised that Zachariah's discipline would end once all these things were fulfilled. And we find that once they are fulfilled and the baby's name is given, Zachariah's tongue is loosed and he's able to praise God. God always fulfills his word. And that's what we really could spend some time preaching about and thinking about. Well, what is God's word to us? What is God's word through Jesus? And what is He guaranteed to fulfill? What can you trust? And that would be a great way to go. But today we're going to talk about God, God's merciful discipline. Uh, Zachariah, the reason I'm going to go there this morning, one, I feel led to go there, but two, there, there, is a, there is a bridge there, which is Zachariah's discipline comes to an end. It begins in the holy place where he's uh, muted, and it's gone on for nine to ten months. Uh, however you kind of work out the period of pregnancy plus having to get con- uh, conceived this baby having to be conceived and he's learned a lot and now this is the day that his discipline comes to the end and, and that's not really addressed and so we kind of just move on but I just want to pause there for a second because um, God's merciful discipline is also true in every believer's life children don't like discipline most of them don't and if they do there's something wrong with them <laughs> every child needs discipline there was a home, uh, yeah, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there was a home where discipline was usually called, uh, carried out um, by a wooden spoon named Noddy. And uh, this one child didn't like to be disciplined, and so they decided to hide Noddy, um, thinking that their wisdom would, was more superior to their parents, and without Noddy, no discipline could happen. And so Noddy was hidden, and uh, a time came when this child needed to be disciplined, and Noddy couldn't be found. Uh, and this child thought they had got away with it. What this child didn't know, though, is that Noddy has an infinite amount of cousins. And a cousin was found and discipline was carried out. All of us are similar to that. If we can escape discipline, we will. None of us choose it. None of us get in trouble as kids and go, hold on, I'll meet you in my bedroom. And go wait for discipline to occur. We try and escape it, we argue out of it, we defend ourselves, we duck and we weave get away from discipline. We don't like discipline. But we're God's children. And uh, God, as a loving Father, needs to discipline us. But that doesn't mean that we like it. Sometimes we forget or refuse to accept God's discipline. We stop expecting it. The writer of Hebrews, I mean, I'm not going to do too many hands up today because it's such a touchy subject, but the, the writer of Hebrews says that it's possible that you could forget that God's going to discipline you. Let me just say this at the outset, though, that if you come into any family, any healthy family, I'm not saying my family is healthy, but I I think we're more healthy than unhealthy. We have four children. There's very few times 
where one of them are under discipline. It's not like the norm. It's not like the normal culture within the home that, like, you know, whenever you come, someone's going to be disciplined, and normally most of them. Uh, and so, in this room, as brothers and sisters, we share a father, a loving father. It's not that all the time there's discipline going on, but when discipline is needed, there's discipline going on. And so, some of you might be under God's discipline. But it's not the culture of the God's family that we should all be expecting to be here. The majority of us are under the weight of His hand in that way. But if you're under His discipline, accept it. The writer of Hebrews says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as His children? My children, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Have you forgotten this? Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when rebuked by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every child whom He receives. There's no child that escapes it. Aren't you glad you came this morning to hear the good news? <laughs> All right. Zachariah has now come to the end of this course of discipline, and there's four things I want to show you. Number one, when you are disciplined, you are not being punished, threatened, or forgotten. Number two, when you are disciplined, you are being refined, pruned, and loved. How not to respond to discipline, and how to respond to discipline. Those are the four headings. Okay, number one. When you are disciplined, you are not being punished, threatened, or forgotten. God's discipline of His children is never punishment. This is a wonderful truth to bring home. The reason that God's discipline of His children is never punishment is because God has already punished your sins on Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, Jesus was uh, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement or discipline that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Paul wrote, Jesus was delivered up to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And, and to the Corinthians, he wrote, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. God has mercifully punished Jesus in every believer's place. If you're here today and, and you have faith in Jesus Christ, you recognize that you are a sinner in need of grace, that you can't do it alone, that you need God's mercy and kindness in your life, and you've bowed your life before Him humbly, and you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and your faith has been placed in Him through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and you've been raised from death to life spiritually, then you have had your sins punished, and there is no more punishment for your sins. For you... The believer, there's no more condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful truth. Just meditate on it for a moment. I'm going to say a lot of things, but just, just pause. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not there is a little condemnation. Not there is seldom con condemnation. Not there is only condemnation for the really bad things. Not there is condemnation after a long while of patience. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's extinguished. It's gone. It's finished. It's over because Christ has been condemned in your place. All condemnation was on Christ Jesus. All punishment was paid for at the cross. Every single sin, past, present and future, and, and don't think that you're sinless, you're not. Sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for it. And every sin that, that you will have to ask forgiveness to God for has been punished on the cross of Jesus through faith and through God's great mercy. And so God will not punish you for your sins 
because he has already punished Jesus for his sins. Sometimes, God will not uh, uh, threaten you. Sometimes, I threaten my kids. This is a little bit of therapy for me. I'm just uh, revealing things to you about myself. And um, you'll like me less, but you'll like God more. I sometimes threaten my children uh, because it works. That's honestly the reason. I don't like it, but it works. It gets results. So I say something like this to them. Hey, if you don't wash your dishes, and all of them are on kids' ministry today, so I'm so glad I can say these things, and they, they can't hold me accountable to them. So, hey, if you don't wash your dishes, your morning breakfast dishes, and you leave that for mom and dad, you're not going to watch TV on the weekend. <gasps> no, you wouldn't. I would. You daren't. I dare. You're threatening. I am. And then Friday comes as this Friday did come. And I was elsewhere, not at home, and I get text, a text and a phone call. I get three phone calls. In fact, I was talking to Tilly. While I was talking to Tilly, I missed three phone calls from my son. Things must be urgent. Boy, are you okay? What's up? Yeah, I was just wondering if we're allowed to watch TV or not, given the, the threat of dishes. I don't know. Did you do your dishes or didn't you? Well... Look, that's not a great parenting model, but it works. It got the dishes washed. It got the dishes put away. But they didn't do it because they love me. They didn't do the dishes because they love their mom and dad. They did the dishes because they love TV. They love entertainment. That's the honest truth. That's why it's terrible parenting. Because it's kind of saying, look, I'll help you get what you love if you do what I want. I'm, I'm manipulating their behavior to get them what they want rather than getting them to behave out of love. When I've got more time, we, we don't threaten children. God, God never threats, threatens us. That doesn't mean God doesn't take things away from us. In fact, if I was more like God, I might get to Friday and just say, no, sorry, no entertainment. This has been a tough week. We have had to have your back all week long and, and you've, you really have uh, dropped the ball on things that are expected of you. And, and sorry, we're rather going to take the time that we would do entertainment to clean the house, which hasn't been done. I'm just not that courageous. <laughs> Having four pairs of eyes looking at me, you, you, you didn't. Please love me while we clean the house. God, uh, you know, think about it. When Saul, when the kingdom was taken away from Saul, there's no threat. God just said, it's done. I'm finding another king. I'm finished with you. When David wasn't allowed to build the temple, David, a man after God's own heart, and God said, no, you can't build a temple for me. Your son can. When David's lost his son, he couldn't, he couldn't manipulate God. He couldn't twist God's hand. God didn't threaten him. When Paul was shipwrecked, when Paul was imprisoned, when the Christians were persecuted, there's no threat. God, God is more than willing to do things in our lives that are uncomfortable for us or allow things into our lives that we don't like. But they never come. They're never preempted with threats. Because He doesn't allow us room to manipulate Him. We can't tug a war with Him. We can't wrestle with Him. We can't arm wrestle. Yes. What, about, what if? Do you know anyone? Most, most people who are close to faith, they're, kind of, they're curious about faith, but they're not, really, they're not really trusting in Jesus. And then maybe people who are just on the other side of faith, this is how they might talk to God. If you give me this, I will give you the rest of my life. Right? There's a kind of, let me negotiate you. Let me affect your behavior, and then I'll respond. And we kind of threaten God. If you give me this, I will give you that. God doesn't do that to us. Samuel says, God will not lie or have regret, for he's not man that he should have regret. Whatever he does, he does because it's right. 
He never, he never questions it. He never thinks about it twice. I overthink things. Anyone in this room like me? Anyone else overthink? You question everything. Not only are you questioning everything you should do, you question everything you did do. And you think through it. I'll think through this sermon more than any of you. When, all, when you've left the room and forgotten it, I'll still be going through it a hundred times. What was too harsh? What wasn't strong enough? Where did I lack courage? Where was I being impatient? God's not like that. Because everything He does is holy and right. He just keeps on keeping on. Job says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Uh, John says, remember Damien's text that he brought to light, a person can only receive, uh, sorry, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from God. In other words, God doesn't threaten us. He gives and he takes. He blesses and he removes. God will not threaten us before he disciplines us. What a relief. When we are disciplined, we may say, I don't know if you felt this way. Where are you, God? Why have you turned your back on me? Don't you love me? Why don't you listen? What did I do? It can be, we can feel like we've been treated unfairly. We can feel confused. We can wonder what God's up to. It's not what we deserve. You may worry about a lot of things. What's interesting, though, is that uh, think about it. When we have opportunities to prosper, or we're healthy, or having fun, or enjoying some pleasure, or experience, or luxury, or influence, or affluence, or power, or we get promoted, or we're attractive to someone we hope to be attractive to, we don't worry about this. This isn't something we think. We don't go, where are you, God? What are you doing in my life? This is a bit unfair. When all the mercies and kindness are evident and the blessings are outpouring, we don't go, this is unfair. Where are you? What did I do? But when those things are taken away, when it's not like going that way, God must be doing something wrong. In other, words, in other words, that means, if anyone feels that way, that our internal heart theology is that God has to bless me, and when He's not blessing me, there's something wrong. That's not how a loving Father works. Discipline is part of the God blessing you. Blessing me, sorry. It's not easy to recognize God when we're experiencing a loss of income or sickness or hard times or suffering or discomfort or being, being cancelled by someone stripped of power, demoted. And yet God may be just as much as work, at work. Surgery uh, isn't really comfortable, but it's good. Training, I heard about a couple of guys who are training in the church, and training is painful, but it's good. And discipline might not be comfortable, and it might be painful, but it's good. But God will, God will discipline you because He has not forgotten you. That's the irony, that you're not forgotten. There's nothing wrong. The reason that you experience discipline is because you are not forgotten, and because God is engaged in your life. So when you are disciplined, these three things, you are not being punished, you are not threatened, and you have not been forgotten. Know that. Seal it upon your heart because it will resolve a lot of concerns. Number two, when you, are, when you experience discipline, it's because you are being refined, pruned, and loved. 
The psalmist writes, God, you refined us like silver. When gold and silver is refined in a furnace, all the bad stuff, all the impurities are burnt off and all the beauty and purities are brought out. It's a painful process for all the bad things, but it's a beautiful process for all the good things. Actually, I want to, Nas, can you go give me a bottle of water from the kitchen? I want to show something in a second. Isaiah says uh, in Isaiah 48 verse 10, it says, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Thanks, Isaiah, prophet of encouragement. God says through Isaiah, I have refined you through the furnace of suffering. There's something about God's discipline that's allowed in our lives. There's something about the way God works through suffering as well that refines us, that brings beauty to our faith, that strengthens us and encourages us, that attaches us to trusting God above other things and circumstances. A decent parent won't rescue their child from minor suffering. A decent parent will allow... No, I need a plastic bottle, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, a decent parent will allow uh, suffering of their child. But they won't just ignore it. They won't just bypass it. They won't just go, oh, that was good for the child, and now just move on. They'll take it. A decent parent will take that moment, get on their knees... And talk the child through. Help them understand. Gain benefit from what they've experienced. So that their child can develop character. Their child can develop a good perspective. Yes, thank you. A good perspective. David, Thanks, love. David uh, Paulinson, who was a good, a good um, uh, Christian counselor, had this, he did this thing that, um, that he'd show people, and I'm going to do it for you in a moment. And he'd take a bottle of water, and he'd start to squeeze it. Ooh. And he would, um, and he'd bend it, and twist it, and turn it, and there'd be water spilt. <laughs> Lynn's on two weeks holiday. This will dry. <laughs> Why is there water on the floor? There's lots of whispering, but I can't hear it. I'm 40 years old. Help me out. Why? Pressure. Pressure? Pardon? Because I squeezed the bottle. Anyone else? What's that? Because there's no lid. You're all correct. But the point is, there's spilt water. You know why? Because there was water in the bottle. If all the squeezing didn't let anything out, it's just because nothing was in there. The reason God disciplines us is because there's stuff in us that He needs to get out. And the squeezing and the pressure and the bending and the discipline of our lives brings out things that we didn't know were there. Do you know that you have idols living in your heart? Idols that you worship. <laughs> Some of you do. <laughs> Good. I know, I know. I don't know what they are all, but I know that I have them. You... you And the way that God helps to expose these, to refine these, to burn these, is through discipline. And just like that, it's not a very neat process. It's not a very nice process. There may be a bit of splatter, but it's good. If water was a bad thing and the bottle was something we were trying to rescue, then we would say every bit that got squeezed out was a good move. And God in His righteous discipline squeezes us in the most loving way. 
not the most comfortable, not the most painless, but the most beneficial to help us get idols out of our hearts. Do you know what will make that discipline worse? Resisting. Resisting. This is one thing that I, um, I don't despise my wife, but I despise about a certain aspect of her faith. She, she identifies so quickly when God is disciplining some, her. She co- so quickly goes to her knees. She co- so quickly starts to repent. She so quickly asks God to help her. She so quickly invites others to speak into it. She so quickly tries to see what God wants to remove and put in. And I'm not like that. I have to go through a litany of thoughts and excuses and reasons and you don't understand. It's like bending an iron pole. And you know what that means for me? Discipline's a little bit tougher. Not God's tougher. God's as committed to me as He is to you as He is to my wife. But my participation to His work in my life makes it just a little bit more difficult. The way I learned grace, about grace, none of you will ever be able to convince me anything else about the goodness of God's grace. Because it took me two and a half years of pain, of tears, of suffering, of falling asleep, crying, for God to help me see my idol of self-righteousness and help me understand grace. And when it came home to me, I was a changed man forever. It was like getting saved, getting baptized, coming to life, understanding better the tones and beauty of God's grace. Two and a half years. It's like Christianity 101. My children get it. God uses discipline to refine our faith and character. Uh, Dave Furman has an article entitled, If God Loves You, He Will Prune You. No. That's a great article, isn't it? Just, you don't even have to read the article. The title's good enough. It's like a Joshism. If God loves you, He will prune you. Can you imagine Josh saying this again and again? If God loves you, He will prune you. Hey, Josh, can you pray for me? There's some really tough things in my life. You know what? If God loves you, He'll prune you. <laughs> Suck it up, Sally. <laughs> Sorry if there's any Sallys here today. Um, one year, a friend of mine returned home from uni and he helped to plant thousands of apple trees, baby apple trees, in an orchard. And then he went away for a year at uni and he came back. He was starting to be a lawyer and he came back and the farmer had cut all the trees down. And he went away for a year and came back and the farmer had cut the trees back down. And he was quite uh, upset about all of this and went to understand the process. And it was explained to him that the farmer uh, needs to keep cutting them down because they just want to shoot up. But if they do, they won't have a deep root system and they won't be able to bear much fruit. And so by cutting them down, it pushes the roots into the soil so they go much deeper, get much firmer root system. That means two things. One, when they're allowed to grow, they can bear a lot more fruit for a lot, lo- a lot longer. That's a good result. Secondly, when it, there's a difficult dry season, the roots are so deep that they can get water from, from deep below the surface of, of where, where the sun can't evaporate the water. So it's a long-term goal. And this is what God's refining does to us. Uh, God's pruning does to us. And it makes us deepen our faith in Him. Do we really trust Him? Do we really trust His character? You don't, you don't know if you trust that God's good 
unless something's going on in your life that you don't deem is good, is God good? I sat down with a gentleman. I think I said this. If I've said this to you, please forgive me. I feel like I've said this to so many people. I sat down with a gentleman and he said to me, his marriage is falling apart. He didn't realize it. He thought he had a good marriage. Uh, so they're having to work on that. His uh, th- and three children, I'm not going to tell you two, spe- two specifics in case you know him. Three children all have chronic illnesses that will mean they'll probably never leave their house. Three adult children. Radical, radical um, problems. Mainly mental health issues. My question to him was, how are you? He leaned forward and said, Mark, there's so much mystery that I don't understand. But all that I do know is God is loving and God is good. And he radiated as if he was reflecting the sun itself. We were sitting outside a trig. And I guarantee you that if you ask anyone at, at watching our table or, or who could see us at the table, which one of these two men have got it better? Every single person would say he does. Now, on the inside of the story, I have it a lot better, seemingly. But actually he does because his revelation of God's goodness is deeply rooted. And even the worst of circumstances cannot shake his belief that God is loving and God is good. I'm yet to learn it. I've been asking the question, is there a way to learn part time? (laughs) Can you keep most of the good situation and just like between the hours of seven and nine, learn about how to deepen your roots? That God is good and God is loving. There's only one way to deepen your faith. Deepen your trust. God uses discipline to prune us so that we can bear greater spiritual fruit. The writer of the Proverbs says this of um, the next one, loving, God loving us. The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. The Lord was disciplining Zechariah because He loved Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. His, his words were the words for God to the to people. People would wait on His word, wait to be taught about God by Zechariah. But His words were failing. He doubted. And God took him through 10 months of learning to trust His goodness, learning to trust His word, learning to trust His love. God loved Zechariah so much. And when Zechariah came out of those 10 months, he spoke again. The first thing he did was praise God and a multitude of people were in wonder. What is going on? He was a changed man. He changed without a word. His words were the tools of his trade and he changed without them because God loved him. The love, this is actually quite a, it kind of, we miss it, we can miss it straight away, uh, this principle, it's so simple. But actually, the reason God loves us is because it's, we're in the context of family. This is where the, the God demonstrates His love in a, in, a, in a family context. The writer of Deuteronomy says, Know this in your heart, as a father disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So the context isn't God is so sovereign and great and mighty and strong that He will discipline you because you're so small and stupid. That's not the, it's not like a superiority, superior, inferior kind of thing. Better or worse. The context of discipline and love comes into He's your Father and so as His child He can't not discipline you because He's good and loving. Because you're in an intimate relationship with Him, because He cares for you, He's going to discipline you. Try... try 
perceive, this is quite a big point, try to perceive the difference. God punishes every sinner for every sin because God is holy. God punishes every sinner for every sin because God is holy. He can't not do it. He's a holy God. He can't not punish sin. However, God disciplines every child of His own because it is good for the child. When you come to faith through Jesus Christ, something shifts, something changes. And the work of God in your life is because it's good for you. It's good for you. Before Jesus, you were going to experience a great suffering because, because it's right, because of who God is. God is holy and righteous and just. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you experience God's hand in your life because it's good for you and He's forming something in you. Spurgeon said, The rod of God has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. Just meditate on that. I believe it's probably up on the board. The rod of God has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. God doesn't discipline us in equal measure to our faults. He only disciplines us to the measure that is beneficial for our character and our faith. He's not responding to each individual sin or lack of faith or doubt or wrong attitude or bad thought. God is doing what is right and purposeful for you, your character and your faith. Not just you, but you in the body of Christ as well. God disciplines us because He loves us. Number Number three. These will be quicker. How not to respond to discipline? There's two ways to avoid responding to discipline. <laughs> and when I think about this in like a family culture, I, I, I can see this. Um, the two ways is this. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's the wrong, first mistake is regarding it lightly. The second mistake is, Nor be wary when reproved by Him. That's the second mistake, being wary. The first wrong response to God is thinking too little of God's discipline. Some of us are like spoiled children and we don't understand the need for discipline and so we don't think very much of it and we feel like we're being patient with God. Like He's grumpy and He's kind of wasting His time and He's taking things out on us. And so it's like, you know, our feeling, although we never say this or think this, is when God's finished being grumpy, He'll change things in my life. I've just got to put up with Him for a while. In the meantime, I can go and try and make my own life okay. We feel a bit of impatience. And we think it's purposeless. We don't get it. Discipline helps us believe in God's word and trust his character. That's why God is allowing us to go through it. It's very purposeful. It's very deep. God doesn't waste time disciplining us. Don't think too little of it. The second wrong response to God's discipline is that we get crushed by it. So some of us are like spoiled children. The rest of us are like sulky children. We withdraw and mope around. We don't get our way. <laughs> I laugh whenever I think about this because I have one child who's like this. And it's, it's just funny. Before discipline's even occurred, the whole world has gone bad. They'll go take themselves and sit in a corner. They'll say, I can't come have dinner. I don't deserve it. I'm terrible. I'm the worst. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you kind of are. 
Um, and you're even worse than we thought, seeing how you're reacting. But you, you should come have dinner because that will help you and it will help us. And, and actually, there's now a second thing we need to discipline, which is your self-centeredness. Um, we get crushed by it. James says, James who's probably the hardest guy to read in the New Testament. James, hard James, says, <laughs> God's discipline actually helps us grow our faith in God and makes us more resilient. Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Come, we're going to give you some attention. This is never going to happen, but in, like some, in some like utopian world, I imagine my kids going, no, it's my turn, Dad. Give me some attention. Work on my character. That's never going to happen. But that is what's happening when discipline is occurring. You could pause at any moment, hopefully. Hopefully this is true. If you're a parent, hopefully it's true in your house or in mine. And the child could say, let's just pause. Just freeze the remote like that, that uh, movie. Let's just freeze. And I want to ask the question, what are you working on in my character or my faith or my belief or my, or my thought system right now? And hopefully we can give some answer and go, now play and let's go back to discipline, back to what's going to help develop that character, help you with your thoughts, help you with your affections, help you with uh, the, your treatment of others, with your treatment of self. There's purpose to it. A, sulk, a sulky child just can't allow this. And as sulky Christians, we, we kind of figuratively cross our arms uh, we, we draw attention to ourselves by withdrawing from others. And we isolate ourselves. We shouldn't respond to God's discipline like a spoiled child or like a sulky child. Discipline is a wonderful environment to grow our faith in God. To learn to trust His character. Because it's tough. It's what makes us unshakable. Okay, so how do we respond to discipline? Here we go. He's not a child in the whole world who escapes it. Not, not a child of God. Think about the Bible. Go through the whole Bible. Is there anyone who escaped God's discipline? Is there a prophet? Surely a prophet. Nope, no prophet escapes. Is there a king? Surely a king. Nope, no king. Is there an influ influential figure? What about an apostle that escaped God's discipline? Nope, no apostle escaped it. What about a famous disciple? Nope, no famous disciple escaped it. There's none of God's children that escaped God's discipline. Except... The infant. Only the infant escapes it. But no Christian is encouraged to remain a spiritual infant. The reason an infant escapes discipline is because they can make no use of it. It's not good for them. They can't learn anything. You wouldn't discipline a week-year-old, a one-week-year-old, one because there's just, they're just a ball of uh, instincts. They're very stupid. <laughs> And so perhaps if you became a Christian and the following day you went to be with Jesus, you might have escaped discipline. But if you became a Christian and for any length of time walked with Jesus and left infancy of faith and started to grow in your faith, well, you're open, you are welcome to discipline. Here's just for ABCD way to kind of think about maybe discipline that might be helpful. Number one, acknowledge. Recognize that you are in a season of discipline. Acknowledge it. Notice it. The question I'm not answering, and I'm trying not to go, and I don't want to go, and I don't want to get lost there. Please. But I just want to acknowledge that there is this question. Is, is suffering from God, or, or is it something else? The right, the, I don't know the answer. 
And you don't know the answer. And we will never know the answer. Some suffering, God, all suffering God allows. Because it has to be allowed by God. He's sovereign and and omnipotent. But it doesn't mean God has caused your suffering. Can we put that back on the shelf? Let's go back to the reality of your life. Answering or not answering that question is not going to help you acknowledge that discipline is in your life. Acknowledge that you are going through a season of discipline. If in doubt, assume you are. God, what are you teaching me? Number two, bow. Let let the water spill. Humble yourself before the Lord. Listen to Him. Sit in silence like Zechariah. Prayerful silence. Learn what He's teaching you. Let Him reveal the idols of your heart. Let Him show you what you're serving. Bow. A humble position. Let the water spill. Number three, cultivate. Apply the gospel to your heart until you have a new perspective. There's like those questions that we got from Damien that are helpful or any other method that you can. Have, have a friend come help apply the gospel to your heart. What am I believing? What am I believing that's not true? Not with my head, but with my heart. Can you help me see where I'm not trusting God? Can you help me see where I've made a good thing, an ultimate thing? Maybe a relationship with someone else. Maybe my children. Maybe my parents. Maybe my, my career. Maybe what people think of me. Maybe my financial security. Can you, can you help me see where I've made a good thing, an ultimate thing, and help me to find my, my faith and trust in Jesus again? Cultivate that until you have a new perspective of Jesus. And then lastly, dance. I was just looking for A, B, C, D. You don't literally have to dance. You can dance. You could dance. You should dance. The point is rejoice in the merciful discipline of the Lord. That proves His loving character and commitment to you. To refine you, to prune you, and to actively participate in your life. Dance at the end of it. Zachariah, his first words. Ten months he's silent. Ten months. He could have looked at Elizabeth and said, I love you. I've been waiting ten months to say that. He could have looked at John and gone, thank you God for John. He could have looked at the neighborhood and gone, I've been waiting to... But his first words to, were to rejoice in God. He got his vo- he's got his voice back and he praised God. Rejoice. Testify. Tell people what God is doing in your life. Tell the church what God is doing in your life. Uh, celebrate with other people what God is doing in your life. Celebrate it. Share the testimony. I, can't, I, I, I know it must be boring for you because you hear from me so often, but I get so, I'm so happy to tell people how ungracious a human being I am by nature because it reminds me of the revelation that God, of, God, of God that came home to my heart of His grace. It reminds me of two and a half years of discipline where God helped me to learn what His grace is like. Tell your story. Repeat it again and again. Testify, rejoice in what God is doing in your life. In the fruit that you're bearing. Acknowledge, bow, cultivate, dance. Let me read to you a prayer from the Valley of Vision. It has been amended by me. Uh, And there are some spelling errors I can already see. Forgive me. The Puritans were perfect. I am not. O Lord... I am a shell full of dust, but animated with an invisible, rational soul and made new by an unseen power of grace. Yet I am no rare priceless object, but one that has nothing and is nothing. While I am chosen by you, given to Christ and born again, 
I'm deeply convinced of the evil and misery of a sinful state, of the vanity of creatures, but also of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. When you want to guide me, I control myself. Though you are sovereign, I rule myself. When you want to take care of me, I satisfy myself. When I should depend on what you provide, I supply my own desires. When I should submit to your providence, I follow my own will. When I should study, love, honor, and trust you, I serve myself. I twist and turn your laws to suit myself. Instead of your approval, I look for the approval of others. I am by nature an idol worshiper. Lord, it is my highest aim to bring my heart back to you. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy. Nor can I be my own Christ to restore my joy. Now can, now can I be, nor can I be my own spirit to teach, guide, and rule myself. Help me to see that grace does this by God-given discipline. For when I believe my credit is good, you bring me lower. When I trust in my riches, you ensure there is never enough. When I seek pleasure to satisfy myself, you make it distasteful to me. Take away my roving eye, my nosy ear, my greedy appetite, my lustful heart. Show me that none of these things mean anything in the end, as they cannot heal a wounded conscience, support a failing body, or uphold a departing spirit. Then, take me to the cross and leave me there.